He is risen. And I'm sure you're all saying in your living rooms, He is risen indeed. This is the best day of the year for Christians. We love the fact that the tomb is empty and everything Jesus said, did, claimed, was all vindicated and reinforced, um, proven by the fact of the resurrection. So uh, we love this day and wish that we could be celebrating it together. But we are celebrating it together just um, in spirit and not in person. So our text this morning is Romans 8. And if you're not there yet, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 14 to 25. And while you're turning there or maybe pulling it up on the screen, um, if you don't have a Bible, you can always look at ESV online and find the text there. Um, But I was listening to a podcast recently. It's called This American Life. And usually um, each episode is told in multiple acts, um, you know, like a a show, Um, different acts, one, two, three, four. So this one had four acts. And usually the, the, you know, each story, they're all related to an overarching theme. And the theme of this one was people rising to the challenges that the coronavirus is posing. So there was a question um, that echoed through this, this whole episode. I'm not sure if it was intentional. It seems like it must have been intentional because of the repetition. Um, and the question's probably one that you resonate. Is it all going to be okay in the end? I think... Maybe we're all wondering that in one way or another. Um, So I'm actually going to read a few excerpts from uh, three of the four acts. And in the first act, one of the producers of the show called his brother-in-law, who had tested positive for coronavirus. Um, His wife had also tested positive. Um, They have a little daughter who's a toddler. And so he called to check in on him, but also to find out what is it like Um, in the midst of this, especially as you're trying to take care of a little child. Um, So the brother-in-law's name is Aaliyah, and the interviewer brother-in-law is Ben. So Aaliyah says this, just to give you sort of a scene report here, it looks like, it looks like this. Think about a normal Brooklyn-sized apartment. It looks like there were 50 toddlers who had unsupervised, an unsupervised birthday party here. Um, Ben asks his brother-in-law if he feels like he's bottomed out yet. And Aaliyah says, I keep waiting for it. I think it comes. I thought it came like four times. And then today, I'm the most tired I've been the whole time. So I just don't know. If this is all that ever happens, it'll be a triumph. It seriously will if this is all that happens. It's just the scariest part is, is it going to go into our lungs, you know? And I keep reading these stories out of Wuhan about these young physicians that are like my age, relatively young, that are dying from this. And I just had to stop reading them. It just makes me worry too much that it's going to happen to our family. It's so scary to not be able to protect your family. And that's why I emailed you guys. He's speaking again to his brother-in-law, Ben, who called. I emailed you guys that stuff. I don't know if anything's going to happen. And if it does happen, it's going to happen so quick. And I won't have time to deal with anything and get my affairs in order, you know? So I emailed you and Catherine, like, here's what me and Amy want. Here's our financial stuff, because I just have no clue. And that's the worst part. If we could be guaranteed that that wasn't going to happen, this would just be uncomfortable 
and fine. We could laugh about it in a different way, but it's the fear that at any second, one of us could just take really ill and maybe worse. So then Ben asks how his little niece is doing, and Aaliyah answers, physically she's doing fine, but she's showing behaviors that indicate she's upset. We tell her it's the inside game. Everybody's playing the inside game right now, and soon it's going to end. But it's been sad. She said to me, I so sad. I so sad. None of my friends want to come to my house. And then Aaliyah just started crying. Everything she draws, she's like, this is for my friends, or I made this for my mommy. This is for mommy. She keeps talking about how sick Amy is. That's her mom. And I tell her, you know, mom is sick, but mom's getting better. She wasn't getting better yet. I mean, this feels traumatic, feeling so upset about it. Like, are these the last conversations I'm ever going to have with her? And he broke down again. So that was from Act 1. Act 2, there's a woman named Gian, whose mother suffers from ALS. And she's been on her back for the last six years, unable to move, trapped in her body. And Jean cares for her mother, and her life very much revolves around her mother, and her mother's around her. Um, she lives in an assisted living facility, um, a care facility. So they are the only family that they have, you know, they only have each other. So when COVID-19 hit, she was hysterical with concern for her mother that her mother would catch C-19 and die. She wasn't able to see her at first and then only allowed in once to see her before the nursing home was, was shut down to visitors. So this woman, Emmanuel Berry, um, was on the phone with her and said, what, what did you guys say to each other on that last visit? And Jiang said, because I'm her daughter, I'm her caregiver. I'm her conduit to the world. I have a responsibility to soothe her panic, not to stoke it. I said things to her that I think I would have wanted someone else to say to me, which is, this is going to be okay. We will get through this. I will see you again very soon. I don't know when, but it's going to be very soon, and we will get through this together. But then she says, but they weren't words that I necessarily believed, if I were to be totally honest. It was really hard to leave her. She began crying, just hysterically crying, because I think she knew and now I realize that last Tuesday might have been the last time I see my mother. And then from Act 4, same woman, Emmanuel Barry, has this friend, Rebecca, who's in China. And Emmanuel was texting her when COVID-19 broke out in China to see if she was okay. Now, Rebecca from China is texting Emmanuel to see if she's okay. So Rebecca asks on the phone call here, how are you doing? And Emmanuel responds, how am I doing? I don't know. I think I've accepted that it's going to be tough. But part of me just wants to, like, know that it's going to be okay at the end. Even if it's going to be so, like, if it's going to be so difficult. In other words, she can handle the difficulty if it's going to be okay in the end. Rebecca then said, you want to know it's going to be okay in the end? And then she goes on to say that some of the restrictions have been slowly lifted in China where Rebecca lives and life is returning to normal. So someday, COVID-19 is going to be like smallpox or measles. 
but we are an unknown amount of time away from that day. Right now, we live under constant threat of a virus that could be deadly for some of us. We also feel helpless against so much of the disruption that it is causing. It's got all this massive disrupting power, relationships, freedom, work, travel, the economy, etc. People want to know that it's going to be okay. We may be willing to handle hard as long as there is hope, right? Light at the end of the tunnel. We want hope. Hope is a confident expectation of a better future. And we need solid hope, not just, you know, well wishes and sentimentality. But you know what? Even if we make it through this pandemic, if you make it through this pandemic, even if the, the economy rebounds, something else is going to get you. It's a quote by Woody Allen. Uh, we actually don't have a slide for this one, but um, I added this one in late. So Woody Allen says this, I always see death's head lurking. I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden at the most exciting basketball game and they're cheering and everything is thrilling and one of the players is doing something very beautiful and my thought will be, he's only 28 years old and I only wish he could savor this moment in some way because you know this is as good as it's going to get for him. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. As Camus wrote, it's not only that he dies or that man dies, but that you struggle to do a work of art that will last and then realize that the universe itself is not going to exist after a time. Until those issues are resolved within each person, religiously or psychologically or existentially, the social and political issues will never be resolved except in a slapdash way. Woody Allen is an atheist. And so certainly, if there's no God and there's no hope, extinction is all we face, then yeah. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. So is there such a hope? I mean, we human beings long for it. We need hope. And we need a lasting hope that doesn't get burst by death. And that is actually what Romans 8 is all about. So we don't have time to look at the whole chapter. It's well worth, you know, a series of, of messages. But we're going to focus in on verses 14 to 25. So I know that verse 14 is kind of, you know, parachuting in in the middle of a paragraph. I was originally going to start in verse 18, but we just can't miss this Sweet, sweet truth in verses 14 to 17. We need to see this sons of God, children of God context here before we get to verse 18. It's vital to our understanding of verses 18 to 25. So the first point is verses 14 to 17, adoption, which is already and not yet. So we have to ask the question again. We're kind of parachuting into the middle of this book called Romans. Who is this chapter speaking to? Who is this chapter speaking of? Well, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, the Christians in Rome. So it was written to Christians for Christians. 
But it's also a book, the book of Romans is also a book that makes it clear how a person becomes a Christian. So Paul starts out in chapter 1 saying that the gospel, the good news about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, is the power of God for salvation. So this good news is powerful and it can save you. But you've got to ask, why do you need to be saved? Well, because there's bad news. And so Paul goes on, again, in the middle of chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 3 to say there's some seriously bad news. We are all sinners. In chapter 3, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, it means we've all traded down on God. We've exchanged the truth about God, the glory of God. We've turned away from him. And instead of worshiping him and, and loving him and being in relationship with him, we said, eh. And we've worshiped and served created things. So that's falling short of the glory of God. And we are the ones that lose in that bad exchange. And that's not okay. This is God's universe. He made us. He knows what's best for us. We can't just turn away from him in rebellion and there be no consequences. It's why we know we're guilty. We know that people who have no sense of guilt or remorse for wrongdoing are profoundly unhealthy. So our conscience, our guilty consciences confirm what the Bible says. We're guilty and we deserve the judgment of God. So if I told you that you were going to die tonight and face God the judge, and he knows everything you've ever done, everything you've failed to do but should have done, everything that you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever wanted, how would you do in that court? Do you think that you would be asking for justice from that judge? Like, hey, just give me what I deserve? Or would you ask for mercy? And if mercy, which I think anybody that's, you know, halfway honest with themselves, we all know our guilt. If mercy, on what basis? Like, hey, you know, just God's a good guy. He'll kind of wink and, ah, don't worry about it. But that's not just and God is perfectly just. Our good works can't make up for the bad. Like if you were headed into court to be tried for a crime and you helped a little old lady across the street on your way in, that doesn't make up for your crime. You're still going to have to pay for your crime. So God is perfectly just. We're all facing down cosmic condemnation. We can't pay the debt of our sin. We deserve eternal debtor's prison. It's bad news. But thankfully, again, there is good news. This same God who is unswervingly just is also rich in mercy and love. And so God determined a way to be able to be just and the justifier, the pardoner, the forgiver of guilty sinners like you and me. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. So Jesus died to atone for our sins, the sins that we couldn't atone for. He got the condemnation 
so that we could be pardoned and justified. Anyone who trusts in him can be pardoned and justified. So being saved from our sin is a gift of grace. If you repent of your sin, just turn your back on living for yourself, selfishness and pride and worshiping and serving other gods like money and sex and human approval and success and comfort and control and on and on. And you trust Jesus as your Savior, you are a child of God. You're reconciled to God. You're at peace with Him because of the mediator work. He, he goes between and we're here and God's here. He's holy. We're not. And, and Jesus comes in the middle as the mediator, dies in our place so that we can be reconciled to God and at peace with Him. And we also receive the Spirit of God. The Spirit dwells within us. God takes up residence within you if you're a Christian, helping you to know God's love for you and making you more like Jesus and helping you follow Jesus. That's the context for coming to Romans 8, 14 to 17. So let's read it here together. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what is this saying? When the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are led by the Spirit. Again, you have a new master. You're not primarily led by your selfish, sinful desires. They don't rule anymore, even though sometimes we give way to that, certainly. But the Spirit convicts us and brings us back because He's the new master. He's leading us. So when God saved you, you didn't become a miserable slave of some harsh taskmaster. That's not what God is like. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery, working like a dog and just cowering whenever the master comes around, you know, hoping he's not going to crack the whip or zap you with a lightning bolt, you know, if you get out of line. God is not a cruel slave master. He sets us free by his grace and by his love. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 18, Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And if Jesus took the punishment on the cross for you in your place, there's nothing left but love. So certainly his love will discipline us, correct us, bring us back on the path when we wander. But it's not wrath anymore. Jesus bore all of that in our place on the cross. There's nothing left but love. So you don't have to cower before God. If you are trusting Jesus, do you know what is on God's face as he looks at you? It's not disappointment. It's not disgust. It's not irritation. It's not annoyance. You are a beloved child. You've received 
the spirit of adoption. God wanted to give that spirit to you so that you would know whose you are so you can cry out with the intimate, familiar language, Abba, Father. So Abba is Aramaic for Father. It's actually the same in Hebrew. In fact, I spent some time at Israel years ago on this um, short-term trip with some college students and the family that we stayed with, Native Israelis, awesome people. Um, their youngest son was a toddler at the time. And he's constantly walking around the house, you know, Abba, 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 Ima, Ima, which is mother in Hebrew, you know. And you realize, oh, this is like really, really common, normal, familiar language. And we can say that of the king of the universe. We can talk to him that way. He is our heavenly father because he's adopted us into his family. So where do you run when you're in need, when you're in trouble? If you run to your father, your heavenly father, what's happening is the spirit that he's given you is bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. So of course you run to your father. What other reason would you run to God as your father? I mean, isn't that like audacious, presumptuous, you know, craziness? Unless it was true because of the good news of the gospel. Well, speaking of audacious things, if you are a child of God, you are also an heir of God. <laughs> Just let that sink in. You are an heir of God. What would that inheritance be? You're an heir of God, fellow heir with Christ, who is the Son of God. So, you know, what does God own? What's his estate like? What belongs to him? What belongs to Christ, his Son? Everything! So if everything belongs to him and you are his child and you are his heir, then everything belongs to you. It's like what Jesus said to his disciples, his followers in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as verse 17 says, we must suffer with Christ, of course. We can't run from that. A call to follow Jesus is a call to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. But we will also be glorified with Christ. We will be persecuted if we follow Jesus. We will go through trials, certainly. But if you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. You're already at peace with God. You're an heir of all things. It's all yours. <clears throat> but it's also not all yours yet. It's coming. It's already ours, but the fullness of it, the realization of it, the fulfillment of those promises, that inheritance, the realization of our hope is not yet. And so we wait, but we can rejoice while we wait because we wait in hope. It's not an uncertain hope. We don't have to give way to despair we don't have to worry. Is everything going to be okay? This passage says everything's going to be okay in the ultimate, most important sense. 
we don't know about earthly okay for each of us. Some of us may die from COVID-19. Well, even if we don't, we're going to all eventually die. We will suffer. We will go through trials. They won't, like, stuff is not always going to end well. But everything is ultimately going to be okay. That's one of the messages of Romans 8. But you know what? Is everything going to be okay? Isn't the only question we ask. Especially because this world is so full of suffering. And many of your lives are so full of suffering. So we also tend to wonder, will it all be worth it in the end? Especially if you've experienced or you do in the future experience really significant suffering in this life. Is it really going to be worth it? Is this really true? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question in verse 18. For I consider, point number two, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is saying, I've done the math, <laughs> and there's no comparison. Do you believe that? Sometimes it's really hard to believe that. I mean, for one, don't forget the fact that Paul did not leave an, live an easy life. Look at 2 Corinthians 11 sometime and just see the litany of sufferings that he went through. So you can't say to him, oh, easy for you to say. And we believe that these words from the pen of the Apostle Paul are inspired words from God himself. This isn't just Paul's opinion. This is God's truth. This is reality revealed to us from God. So God has done the math. I don't think we need to check his work. And he is telling us that the suffering of this present time, life in this dark, broken world, the sufferings do not hold a candle to the glory that awaits us. So we don't have to check his work, but, you know, remember your high school teacher, high school math teacher? Um, you know, you can think about those dreaded algebra equations or something like that. So your teacher didn't just want the answer, right? Your teacher wanted you to say it with me. <laughs> Show your work. Well, God graciously, he doesn't owe this to us, but he doesn't just give us the conclusion. He gives us not just the answer, but he also shows us his work. He shows us how he came to the conclusion of verse 18. So the last two points, the creation's hope in verses 19 to 22 and the Christian's hope in verses 23 to 25, prove, support, give explanation and rationale for why the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So point number three, the creation's hope in verses 19 to 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So this is the first reason that we know verse 18 is true. The renewal of all creation is coming. So Paul here personifies the created order and says that it waits with eager longing for all things to be made new. Why does creation wait like this with eager longing? Well, verse 20, because it was subjected to futility. Well, what does that refer to? Well, after the fall, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, God communicated the consequences of the rebellion to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, 17 and 18, he said to Adam, Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And then he says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So this wasn't creation's fault, but creation has paid for it. Nature red in tooth and claw. Viruses and plagues and wildfires that wreak havoc on the earth. Extinctions and entropy, rot and decay and drought and famine and hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis. Creation is heaving and groaning under the curse. But the creation wasn't subjected to futility forever. God subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation will one day be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Entropy and extinction will not win. The whole creation is groaning, like in the pains of childbirth. But one day, the new birth will come. And all things are going to be made new. Revelation 21, 1 and 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So this vision of all things made new is better than going to heaven when we die, though that's true for Christians, and it's sweet. But disembodied existence in heaven, you know, your body goes in the ground, your soul goes to heaven to be with God, that's not the end for which we were created and redeemed. That's temporary. So when things like earthquakes and tsunamis and virus pandemics hit, you know, sometimes we have these Christian leaders, you know, saying things like, this is the judgment of God on this place or these people because of this and this and this that they did. It's like drawing a straight line between this, you know, these actions or whatever and this judgment. That is awfully presumptuous. We don't know all of why God does what he does. Here's what we do know. That Things like this are the result of the fall. 
this subjecting the creation to futility, the effects of the fall on creation. Now, <clears throat> have you ever been walking through a city? Um, <laughs> sometimes hard to believe these things, you know, they see, look so foreign if we see them on TV or whatever, where pe- lots of people are together. Um, but maybe you walked through a city, um, you know, at one time or other, and you come upon a group of people who are are like craning their necks. They're up on tiptoes. They're looking down like something is coming. Maybe it's a parade that you didn't know about. Or what happens? You end up taking a cue from those people and you start getting up on your tiptoes and looking and craning your neck. Well, these verses are saying that the world is on tiptoe. It can't wait for the renewal of all things. And we should take a cue from the creation waiting and groaning and on tiptoe until it joins the freedom of the children of God. So creation will one day be made new and join the children. It will obtain the resurrection newness, cosmic newness that the children enjoy. And on that day, when the children of God are revealed in all of their resurrected, glorified newness as the eternal and glorious sons and daughters of the universal emperor who is our heavenly father. On the day that when we see him, we'll be made like him, this resurrected glory, completely made new. On the day when everything sad comes untrue, on that day, the creation also gets remade, completely washed, completely purified, no pollution, completely re-pristined. No more bondage to decay. Nothing but freedom. It's going to be this vast and perfectly safe and perfectly suited playground for the children of God to enjoy play and peace and love and joy and light forever. So that's the first reason why Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Creation's hope of complete and total and forever renewal. And we will live there. Perfect playground forever. The second reason is the Christian's hope. Verses 23 to 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we are not yet at home with God, dwelling together face to face, perfect love and harmony with God and one another. But we are already tasting the first fruits of the renewal of all things. The renewal has already begun. On this day, in AD 33, Jesus rose from the the grave. He is the firstborn from the dead. Yeah, certainly he raised people from the dead, but they died again. He rose from the grave never to die again. 
He's the firstborn from the dead. He passed through the judgment of God and emerged victorious on the other side. He is the beginning of the new creation. The renewal, the reversal has begun. So when God invades your life and changes you by his grace, adopts you into his family, he gives you his spirit. Christians have the first fruits of the spirit. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. See, the renewal has already begun. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are new if we're in Christ. We've been redeemed from slavery to sin. We're adopted into God's family as his beloved children. And yet, we still sin. We still grow old. These bodies decay and die, and so we groan. Growing old, what does it do? It imprisons and limits and hampers us. Bodily injury enslaves us, sometimes temporarily, sometimes for the rest of your life. Disease and conditions and disabilities enslave us. Emotional turmoil and abuse and scars can weigh us down and enslave us. They're like chains and fetters and weights, and we groan under their weight. Even though we know that we're free from the penalty of our sin, even though we know that we're free from, we're we're pure in God's sight from the sins of others against us, these scars and traumas and, you know, injuries and all of this continue to weigh us down and enslave us, and we groan. But one day, we're going to receive our full adoption. The fullness of all the rights and privileges, the full inheritance is going to be ours to enjoy. Full, final, forever freedom. So we groan, and we wait eagerly for the redemption of, of our bodies, the fullness of this freedom that is ours in Christ. All that is ours because of Christ, experience the, experiencing the fullness of it, the full realization. That is our great hope, full renewal. That's the hope in which we were saved. And so we wait, and we wait in hope. And one day, thankfully, all the waiting is going to be over. And everything will not only be okay, but it will all have been worth it. Both questions. Is everything going to be okay? And is it going to be worth it? I consider, Paul's done the math, God has done the math. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I love the vision in Isaiah 65, 17 of all things made new. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things, the things that so weighed us down and imprisoned us and just caused us to groan and suffer under their weight, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Like waking up from a dream. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So let me just close with a, with a few quotes here, and then we're going to sing a final song and be done. So Samuel Rutherford lived a few hundred years ago, and he wrote this. I love this quote. When we shall come home and enter to the possession of our brother's fair kingdom, Jesus, our elder brother, and when our heads shall find the weight of the eternal crown of glory, and when we shall look back to pains and sufferings, then shall we see life and sorrow to be less than one step or stride from a prison to glory, and that our little inch of time. Suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Another one. Fyodor Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov wrote this. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for and will vanish like a pitiful mirage that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And one final thought here. Tim Keller has a great little three-point summary. Um, it was inspired when he read um, Jonathan Edwards' first sermon, which he wrote when he was 18, called The Christian's Happiness. He says it this way, and this is a great little summary of Romans 8. Our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be taken from us. And the best things are yet to come. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that in Jesus, you took all of our bad which is vast. And in return, promise to work all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And the most important things, all the blessing, all the grace, all the promises that are ours in Christ can never be taken from us. And nothing can separate us from your love. And the glories that await us are so great that all the suffering that human beings can experience on this planet are nothing in comparison to them. Lord, please help us believe it. Help us by your Spirit to know the truth of all of this, that we also can consider with Paul, can do the math.
and come to the same conclusion. Give us grace so that we can wait eagerly in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.